This morning we are just looking at really one verse. I'll refer to verse 14 and verse 16 a little bit, but really we're looking at verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4. And this morning we are considering the similarity of our high priest to us. God willing, tonight we will look at the dissimilarity of our high priest to us. But this morning, what's in focus is the similarity of our high priest to us. This verse tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us that our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. After all, it's a double negative, isn't it? Which really becomes a positive. We do not have a high priest who is unable. What that means is we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And secondly, this verse tells us that our high priest has been tempted in every respect as we are. Let's examine each of these statements in turn. First, our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Romans 8.3 tells us that Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't tell us that Jesus was sinful flesh. Because that would mean that Jesus was sinful. Which he wasn't. This means the fact that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. This means not that his flesh was sinful. But that his flesh was like sinful flesh. In other words, at least one of the things that we can infer from that statement, and one of the things that that statement implies, was that Jesus' earthly body was a body affected by the corruption of Adam's fall into sin. Jesus lived in a corrupted body, in a corrupted world, with corrupted men and women and boys and girls. He knows what it is like to live here on planet Earth amidst all of the aches and the pains and the frustrations and the sorrows of a fallen world. Jesus felt hungry when He didn't have enough to eat or when too much time had gone by since His last meal. Jesus felt thirsty when his body hadn't taken in enough liquid. Jesus saw people suffering in various ways and he had compassion on them while grieving the fact of their suffering. He was sorry that they were suffering in the first place and had compassion on them in their suffering. Jesus lost loved ones. And Jesus went to their funerals and cried alongside the other mourners. Jesus wasn't unaffected and untouched by the sorrows and the difficulties of life in this world. He actually felt them and experienced them, including weakness in his body and in his mind. Jesus sometimes needed to take a break. Jesus 
needed to sleep. Jesus felt frustrated at times. Jesus, according to his human nature, experienced the weakness of finiteness. Yes, this very verse of Scripture that we're looking at, Hebrews 4.15, also tells us that Jesus was without sin, but weakness is not necessarily sin, you know. A baby's not sinning just because he can't do push-ups. Right? And in Jesus' case, His weakness that He experienced according to His human nature was not sinful. He was weak after the weakness of man according to His human nature. But He was not sinful. Weak as we are. Tired. Hungry. Thirsty. Frustrated. Sorrowful. As we are. Jesus didn't glide across the top of the sufferings and difficulties of this world. I don't know if you have them in Barbados and ponds or things, but in Canada... There are small insects that often glide across the surface of the water without ever breaking the surface tension. And so to them, it's like a road. They're not swimming, they're walking. And they're just light enough not to break the surface of tension, surface tension of the water. And so they're never really getting wet because they're never really in the water. Jesus didn't glide across the top of the sufferings and difficulties of this world as a small insect would glide across the top of the pond, never really breaking the surface tension and thereby never really entering in and never really getting wet. Jesus got wet, so to speak. Jesus wasn't above the funerals, somehow transcending them. Now, as we saw in John chapter 11, when we were working our way through the exposition of that chapter, the shortest verse in the Bible is two words. Jesus wept. This verse before us today, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, is telling us that Jesus is not the sort of person that you can say... You don't know what it's like to. Jesus is one who knows what it's like by God's design. He entered. He really entered into this world in order to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. John Owen, in commenting on this verse, says, This word, sympathize, includes a concern in the troubles sufferings or evils of others so that the two people are united. He draws an analogy and says, sometimes part of the body is affected with a disease. Then another part of the body may be affected, though that part is not actually infected by the disease. That part of the body is not really sick because it does not have the disease. But it may be said to sympathize 
That is, it is not free from the affects of the infection. This kind of suffering comes about in sympathy through the harmony of two individuals. Jesus felt not only our humanity, but also the sickness of our humanity without himself being sick, so to speak. Jesus was not a sinner, but he was made after the likeness of sinful flesh. And he was born into a normal family, not living high on the hog, but born and laid in the feeding trough, growing up in a working class family, probably lost his father at a reasonably young age, since we don't read much of Joseph later on, which seems strange since we're told that he was a righteous man. So surely he wasn't just unbelieving and passive and out of the picture for that reason. Jesus was not sinful, but he lived a normal life in a sinful world. He was like, something like then, to borrow John Owen's analogy, something like the limb of a body of someone whose heart is not properly pumping blood. The problem is in the heart, not in the limb. But the limb is affected by the heart and feels the effects of the disease in the heart. Jesus came into this world and though the disease and the defect is, is not in Him, properly speaking, the disease and the defects in us affected Him while He was here with us. He felt our weakness, the weakness of our finiteness, and the weakness of our sinfulness, without Himself actually being sinful. And it was God's plan, of course, that He enter into our weakness like this, in order that a verse like Hebrews 4.15 could be written for our encouragement. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is true with respect to all our weaknesses, but the specific focus of this verse is that our high priest has been tempted in every respect as we are. Jesus knows what it is like to be tempted to sin. Now we need to get into some Christology here lest we misunderstand this on one errant side of the truth or on the other. On the one hand, we must not think that Jesus had evil desires. On the other hand, we must not think that Jesus was not really tempted. The truth is somewhere in between these two errors. Let me explain that. James 1.14 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So where does temptation come from? According to James, temptation comes from your own desire. And implicitly, your own evil desire. And when you're lured and enticed by your own evil desire, that's temptation right there. 
It is in this sense that the previous verse, James 1.13, says that God cannot be tempted with evil. Since God has no sinful inclinations, God cannot be lured and enticed by His own evil desire. The same is true of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was and is never lured or enticed by His own desire because He has no sinful inclinations. In this sense, Jesus was not tempted by sin. And yet the Scripture is clear that Jesus really was tempted in some sense. This verse before us today, Hebrews 4.15, states it plainly. In every respect, He has been tempted as we are. We could also recall the gospel accounts in which Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. For example, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 and following, but I'll just read the first three. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, etc., etc. What does it mean then that Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus really was tempted? And that in every respect as we are. When James tells us plainly that God cannot be tempted, and the Scripture testifies that Jesus had no desires which could lure and entice Him into sin. To understand the truth of the matter, we must understand that this passage and the passage in Matthew are speaking about a different type of temptation than James is speaking about. We need to distinguish then between these two types of temptation. What I will call internal temptation and what I will call external temptation. When James speaks about temptation, James is speaking about internal temptation. Temptation that comes from the inside. When Hebrews 4.15 and Matthew speak about the temptation of Jesus, they are speaking about external temptation. Temptation that comes from the outside. Perhaps a couple of examples will help us here. If I said to you now, I have brought with me a loaded gun this morning. Who would like to come up here and get it and murder someone here for the fun of it, here and now? You know, let's spice things up a little bit. Come on up and, and shoot someone, whether the person in front of you or the person behind you or the person beside you. You know, here's the opportunity. Who, who here is... Heart, heart is racing and thinking, did you really? <laughs> this is my chance, right? I hope and I trust that probably none of you are really jumping at that opportunity. If, if you are, you're psychopathic. <laughs> it, you have some serious issues and you need, you need serious help of, of various multifaceted sorts, including pastoral care and counseling, which I for the record, offer to you urgently. I will cancel every plan and meet with you and refer you to external help that you also need. Okay? You, you understand that that's not, really, that's not really very tempting internally to you. But if I said that to you, you would be tempted externally. 
In other words, the opportunity is presented to you to sin. So that would be an example of external temptation. Now, it doesn't meet, in that case, it doesn't meet with the internal, inward inclination to give in to the temptation. And so it's not compelling to you because you don't have an inward inclination to do something like that in the first place. And yet we all have experienced the inward inclination to sin in some way or another. Perhaps you have found an inward inclination to look lustfully at someone. Or an inward inclination to sinful anger. Perhaps even to murder in a different context. In an instance, perhaps, where you've experienced something very traumatic. Or where you harbor profound resentment and hatred in your heart towards someone. And given the chance, you felt an inward inclination that, yeah, maybe I wouldn't under certain circumstances. Perhaps you've experienced inward temptation to do something for your own financial gain, which wouldn't have been honest or legal. Whatever the specifics, each of you and I have experienced real actual temptations to do something wrong, which really did appeal to us inwardly. And we felt that inward inclination to do it. That inward inclination pushing us to do something, whether or not there's any external pressure to do it or not, that inward inclination to do something is what I'm calling inward temptation or, or internal temptation. Each of us has also experienced equally real, actual temptations to sin, which came to us from the outside. And whether they appealed to us inwardly or not is besides the point. The point is that at some point there was some external pressure on you to sin. Perhaps someone asked you to do something dishonest at work. And it matters not whether you felt like doing it or whether you were repulsed by the thought. Perhaps someone tried to seduce you sexually. And again, it matters not whether you felt like you wanted to do it or whether you were repulsed at the thought. Again, perhaps someone invited you to to join them in some sinful activity of one sort or another. Whatever. Whatever it could be. It's irrelevant whether you felt like doing it or not, the external pressure to sin was there. That's what I'm calling external temptation. For some of us, a particular temptation might really appeal to us inwardly. But to others, the same temptation holds no inward appeal. And vice versa. Some who were not tempted inwardly by temptation A are tempted inwardly by temptation B. And, and vice versa. Someone, someone who was tempted by temptation A, external temptation A, isn't so much tempted by external temptation 
be. This distinction between what's going on in our hearts and what's going on in the world and the external pressure and opportunity that we feel is the distinction that I'm making between two different kinds of temptation. External temptation is the situation, the opportunity, perhaps even the suggestion that someone makes to you to sin. Internal temptation is the inward inclination to give in to the opportunity or to the suggestion. James is speaking about internal temptation. And Jesus was not internally tempted. For he had no evil desire to be lured away and enticed by. But Jesus really was externally tempted. Jesus had the real opportunity to lust or to fornicate and so to become sexually sinful. Jesus had the real opportunity to become sinfully angry with the people around Him. Jesus had the opportunity to be dishonest in financial dealings. Jesus had the opportunity to idolize something like the satisfaction of His hunger. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, when after fasting, the devil appears to Him and bids Him to set aside His principles and command the stones to become bread and so forth. This is what it means when Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are. All of the temptations that are before mankind were externally before Jesus. He lived a real human life. And He was not naive as to what people around him were doing to gratify their sinful desires. He, didn't, he wasn't oblivious that, oh, that's an option. He knew that it was possible to sin in this way or in that way. All of these external opportunities were presented to him, were open before him. He knows firsthand what it is like to be hungry and thirsty and tired and find one's self-control and restraint tested. He knows what it's like to have biological urges which call for gratification, whether in in gluttony or in drunkenness or in sex or whatever. He knows what it is like to have an opportunity to better your financial situation through dishonest dealings and so forth. Jesus lived in this world the same sort of lives that we live and had the same opportunities externally presented to Him as are presented to us. He has been tempted in every respect, though not in every sense. He never experienced what I am calling internal temptation, for He has no sinful desires to lure and entice Him away. So that's a point of clarification, but the thrust of this morning's sermon is not how different He is from us. Because the thrust of the verse before us is not how different our High Priest is from us. The thrust of the verse in front of us, Hebrews 4.15, is how relatable Jesus is to us. This verse tells us that He has been tempted in every respect as we are. This verse tells us that Jesus knows what human life is like. 
And He knows what temptations present themselves to us every day. He knows what it's like to go to work in a blue-collar job. He was a carpenter. He knows the way guys talk in the shop. He went to parties. He hung around tax collectors and sinners. There were loose women around Jesus. Jesus knows what it is like. He has been tempted in every respect as we are. Which means that Jesus knows the temptations that we face day by day. Not simply as God. Who knows them in His omniscience. But as man. Having walked in our shoes. Jesus knows the temptations that we face every day. Not just abstractly. On paper. As something he read about one time in a textbook. But Jesus knows them firsthand as someone who has lived in this world with all of the temptations common to man externally present to him externally open to him now what of it What difference ought this to make in our lives that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who has been tempted in every respect as we are? What difference ought this to make to us? Two applications of these truths are given to us, one in the verse immediately before and one in the verse immediately after. First, in Hebrews 4.14, we are told to hold fast to our confession in view of the truth that our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect as we are. Let us hold fast to our confession for, because, for the reason that We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Because of the truths that I just proclaimed to you this morning, therefore, in view of these things, what difference should this make? Let us hold fast to our confession. The logic undergirding the exhortation is this. Hold fast to your confession because it will be worth it in the end. You will not be lost. Here's why. Because Jesus isn't going to give up on sinners. Jesus isn't going to be like, what a loser. How could he do such a thing? I'm done with him. Though Jesus does not approve of human sinfulness and the specific sins which flow from our corrupt nature. Though Jesus doesn't endorse these and condone these, Jesus is one who understands. 
because he has experienced life in this fallen world and he's seen his friends and his loved ones stray into sin and fall into sin. And he's seen just how easy it would be to walk through one of those doors that you shouldn't go through. Though Jesus hasn't and wouldn't sin himself, he understands where we're coming from. And he pities us as we struggle against sin. And therefore, he won't cast us off because of our sinfulness. Therefore, hold fast to your confession because our high priest gets it. He understands our weakness. He understands what it is like to be tempted. He's not going to cast you off. Jesus doesn't give up on sinners. So therefore, hold fast to your confession. Persevere, sinner, because Jesus, your sympathetic high priest, will persevere with you. And verse 16 of Hebrews 4 tells us to confidently draw near to God to ask for help in view of the truth that our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect as we are. How does verse 16 start? Let us then, with confidence, let us then, in other words, in view of these things, then, if all these things are true, let us with confidence. This is the thrust of that word there. Then. It's joining verse 16 with what came before. If Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every way as we are, then let us with confidence draw near. Jesus isn't scornful of sinners. That's the logic of it here. Jesus isn't going to throw you under the bus, so to speak. If you go in His name to the Father and ask for help, Jesus isn't going to tell His Father, don't listen to this woman. If you knew half the things that she has said and done, you wouldn't have any dealings with her. Remember that a Pharisee said something very similar in Jesus' ministry. If he only knew what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for, he is, for she is a sinner. But how did Jesus respond? He said to the Pharisee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Highlight, doubling down, on his willingness to be approached, to be touched, to be petitioned by sinners. Since this is the sort of high priest we have, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who himself has been tempted in every respect as we are, 
then let us draw near to the throne of grace and ask for help. He's not going to tell his father, if you knew what kind of woman this is coming and asking you for help. Now he's going to say, her sins which are many are forgiven. His sins which are many are forgiven. Hear this request. Hear her out. Hear him out. In his priestly work, he will intercede for us. Help her out. Help him out. This is the kind of priest that we have. So let us draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Since, and that's the logic of this passage, since our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect as we are. Since Jesus is this kind of high priest, Hold fast to your confession. He's not going to cast you off. He's not going to give up on you because you're a sinner. And go to Him day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, and ask for the help you need. He's going to be willing to give it because He is this kind of high priest. Jesus was mocked by his opponents for being a friend of sinners. But you realize Jesus never stood up for himself and contradicted them and said, no, I'm actually not a friend of sinners. Every time something like that happened, Jesus doubled down on it as if to say, yeah, that's right. I am a friend of sinners. Jesus is a relatable, approachable high priest. He's a friend of sinners. So hold fast to your confession. And go to Him. In time of need, you're going to find mercy and grace to help you in time of need. Because He is this kind of high priest.